Well, good morning, everyone. Take your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 21, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. It's on page 826 of the Black Bible and the seat in front of you. Friends, if you didn't bring a Bible to church this morning, that Bible is there for you to use during our service. If you don't own a Bible, well, that Bible is now your Bible. Take it home and read from it this week. I'd like to begin with a question this morning. Simply this, who is Jesus to you? Seriously, what comes to your mind when you hear me say the words, Jesus of Nazareth? Perhaps one of the greatest sermons ever preached was a sermon delivered in 1738 by the American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards entitled, The Excellency of Christ. Uh, The sermon is basically Edwards' riff Uh, of the Apostle John's vision uh, of the exalted Jesus in Revelation 5, 5, and 6. If you recall from Revelation 5 and in John's vision, one of the elders of heaven gives hope to a distraught John that he need not weep any longer because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered and is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And yet what happens in Revelation 5 in that vision when when John turns to behold this great and powerful lion, instead what he sees instead is a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne of heaven. And Edwards in the sermon reflects that Jesus is in fact a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. He said this, we see that Christ is in this text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. There is in Jesus Christ, Edward said, a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. Now, friends, I know we don't talk like that anymore, right? I doubt you have used the term excellencies in a conversation anytime recently, let alone a a conjunction of diverse excellencies. But Edwards, he made a profound point, didn't he? In Jesus Christ, we find character traits that we would normally consider mutually exclusive. Infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet overflowing mercy, absolute sovereignty, yet submission to and trust in the Father's will. These things seem at odds, and yet in Jesus, they harmonize into a complete and beautiful whole that showcases the glory of his person and work. Jesus in the Gospels is just constantly challenging our thinking and upending our expectations when it comes to who he is and what he's come to do. Just when we think Just when we think we have this Jesus figured out, he does something to utterly amaze us. Today's text in Matthew 21 makes these diverse qualities of our king even starker. Last week, Jesus amazed us because even as he publicly announced his kingship, that he was the Messiah, he did so in a way that no human ruler on earth ever would. To fulfill the words of Scripture, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, the symbol of humility and peace. And now that he's entered the city, Jesus seems to pivot on a dime when he sees what's going on in the temple court. 
Our passage today highlights Jesus' righteous indignation and wrath as he cleanses the temple and curses a tree. Friends, before we read, let me just remind you that our text today is located at the very beginning of Jesus' final week before his death and resurrection. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Sunday. Our text today takes place on Monday and Tuesday of that week. He'll be crucified on Friday. Let's begin reading. Matthew 21, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Friend, we're going to read down to verse 22. Every now and then, once I begin studying, I realize I bit off more than I can chew in uh, what I gave you that I was going to preach from. So we're not going to go to verse 27. We're going to cap things off in verse 22 today, starting in Matthew 21, 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths that are the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared, praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. He said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, these two scenes in our passage this morning may seem quite different, but they're actually joined at the hip. Uh, They're communicating the same message in both the temple and the tree. Jesus is essentially teaching us the the exact same thing. Here's what he's teaching us. Here's the main idea of Jesus' actions and his words that will be the main idea of our sermon this morning. Jesus is vehemently opposed to dead religion. What matters is your relationship to God. It's a very simple, very direct, very piercing main idea, isn't it? Jesus is vehemently opposed to dead religion. He hates it. What matters is your relationship with God. Two points this morning, probably as close to your Bible headings of this text as I've ever given in an outline. Number one, the cleansing of the temple. We see that in verses 12 to 17. The cleansing of the temple. Number two, the cursing of the tree. We see that in verses 18 to 22. Beloved, I pray that what we see of Jesus today might might challenge us and even strip away the vestiges of spiritual pretense that resides in our hearts. And in its place, God, through his spirit, might fill us with true faith and worship and love. Let's first of all look at the cleansing of the temple in verses 12 to 17. 
The way that Matthew sequences the events in chapter 21 uh, might lead you to think that, you know, no sooner had Jesus arrived in Jerusalem that he just went nuclear right in the temple. But, but Mark's gospel helps us understand that there was actually a day in between Jesus's entry into Jerusalem and his cleansing of the temple. He did go to the temple right away, but Mark says that because it was late in the day, Jesus merely looked around the temple courtyard, took in the scene, and then he came back the next day. And these details are helpful. Um, They help us understand that what we're seeing from Jesus in these verses is not an unhinged fit of anger. Jesus didn't fly off the handle and lose all control. No, what we're observing here in the temple of Jesus is his settled and righteous indignation of what the temple had become. On the donkey, Jesus is pictured as the long-awaited king. Well, now Israel's rightful king exercises his kingly authority over the temple and over its worship. Look at verse 12 again. And Jesus entered the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Friends, remember what time of year it was. This was the week of the annual Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Jews would come from all over Palestine to Jerusalem for this annual celebration. Jerusalem maybe had ah, 30,000, 40,000 people residing in it around that time, but hundreds of thousands would descend upon it during the Passover. The temple was the center of the whole thing. What Jesus would have encountered, according to this text, when he walked into the temple court, which is ironically called the court of the Gentiles, would have looked and sounded something like a cross between the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and a Middle Eastern bazaar. Merchants hawking their animals, money changers hustling people to their tables. The courtyard would have been abuzz with noise and activity. Why? Well, according to the Mosaic law, each Israelite family was to sacrifice a lamb during Passover as a symbol of the people of Israel's salvation through judgment on the night of their rescue from Egypt. They were too poor to purchase a lamb, a dove, or a pigeon, as it's translated here, was a substitute. This is also the typical time of year when each Israelite male would pay the half-shekel tax to the temple. People with Roman coins from Galilee, for instance, would need to exchange their currency for the type of coin required to give to the temple. Families who made the pilgrimage wouldn't haul a lamb or a dove with them. They waited until they arrived in Jerusalem to make such a purchase. And so at first glance, you think to yourself, oh, well, did Jesus just overreact here? I mean, if people needed to exchange currency for real and purchase animals for real to fulfill the law, why did he react so violently? Some have speculated that the merchants and the money changers, well, they must have charged exorbitant amounts. They took advantage of the poor pilgrims and skimmed off the top for themselves. Certainly possible. But we're not told that that's what happened. We're not told that the merchants and the money changers did that. The details that Matthew gives us aren't so much what they did, but where they were when they did it. The temple had turned into a marketplace. The atmosphere was one of commerce, not worship. Instead of encountering God in the temple, those inside the complex would have been too distracted by the hustle and bustle of their encounter with those trying to make a buck. 
Again, all of this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place in the temple complex in which Gentiles were allowed. This was the one place where the, where the nations were welcomed into prayer and reflection of their need for God. Friends, does what I've described about this scene seem like the type of place, the type of context where someone could set their mind on the things of God and prayer and worship? I mean, far from it. And Jesus would have none of it. And what can only be explained by righteous jealousy for the glory of his father, Jesus drove all those hawking animals out. He flipped over the furniture of the money changers. When verse 12 says that Jesus drove out those who sold and bought, it's possible that he cleared out both the merchants, those who sold, as well as ordinary Jews there to fulfill the law, those who bought. Perhaps more likely is that the buyers in this case were the temple priests who purchased the animals for resale. Again, Jesus is establishing his kingly authority over the the temple and over those who had turned it from a place of God-centered worship into a place of self-centered profit. You can imagine the reaction of the temple leaders. (laughs) What is going on? Jesus, why are you doing this? Notice his justification. He calls to the witness stand two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, to establish his point. Look at verse 13. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of of robbers. Jesus' first words come from Isaiah 56, 7. Lindsay read earlier in the service, Isaiah looked forward to a time when the temple would be called a house of prayer for all the nations, for all the Gentiles, if you will. In the coming era of God's salvation, Isaiah prophesies that God will not only gather the dispersed people of Israel, but he will also bring foreigners to his holy mountain and to rejoice in this house of prayer. But now, even at the dawn of the Messianic age, when the Messiah himself stands in the temple, what the king finds is not a house of prayer, but a den of robbers. Why do you think Jesus employs this scripture here? Without even knowing the context of Jeremiah 7, where he pulls that den of robbers from, you might be able to figure it out. A criminal's den is what? It's their hideout. It's the place where they retreat to after committing evil deeds. Uh, My great-grandfather, who died well before I was born, my mom and her sister called him Pappy. Pappy was a Dallas police officer. And one time he got a call that the famous criminals of the Great Depression, Bonnie and Clyde, were camped out by Duck Creek in Dallas, which was in his precinct. Bonnie and Clyde had a, a police radio of their own, apparently. And so by the time Pappy and his fellow cops got to Bonnie and Clyde's den, they had already cleared out. That's the type of image that Jeremiah uses. Only those committing evil acts didn't make their den a secluded creek in Israel, but the temple itself. Listen to Jeremiah 7, 8 and following. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and saying, we are delivered. 
only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, by his actions that day in the temple, Jesus is indicting the type of religious externalism and false worship, false worship that treated God and the temple like a religious rabbit's foot. Oh, God's good with us because we still come to the temple. He forgives our, our wickedness because we offer sacrifices, even though their hearts were still as unrepentant about their sin as ever. Friends, Jesus wants nothing more than to drive out and to upend this type of corrupted worship. This type of what we might even call Christian nominalism, being a Christian in name only. He hates it. The worst type of evil. The worst type of evil is always evil under the cloak of religiosity. A pious veneer with a nasty underbelly. I'm sure we could all think of the worst examples of this. Pastors and spiritual leaders who we've known who've abused their authority and position for their own pleasure or gain. Churches who seem to be more intent upon putting together a, an entertainment production than they are helping people to truly know the Lord by faith in Christ. And these type of examples are clear. They're easy to spot. But what about the more subtle temptation, friends, that resides in each one of us? Slowly but surely, you begin to view the church's leadership structures and ministries as the means to your own promotion and status and power rather than the means to truly serving others in love. Maybe if you're honest, you, like these leaders, treat the church and Sunday worship like a spiritual talisman, like a religious lucky charm. You live with little consciousness of God during the week, Little lifestyle of devotion as a response to God's grace. You gratify your sinful desires regularly without repentance. And then you presume that God simply wipes the slate clean because you come to church on Sunday. Oh, friend, be careful. Jesus will not be mocked by that type of spiritual show. He knows your heart. He knows our church. And the most gracious thing he could do for you as an individual or for us as a church, if we're given over to that type of sinful pretense, is to upend it, to expose it, to drive it out. Dear friends, in Jesus' cleansing of the temple, he was fulfilling the ancient words put in the voice of the Lord's Messiah some 500 years before Christ. Listen to Malachi 3. Malachi 3, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He was coming to cleanse. See, for those with eyes to see, Jesus' action in the temple that day wasn't it wasn't the irrational response of a religious zealot, but the authoritative self-disclosure of Israel's king. Jesus has come to set all things right. As king to rule over the hearts of his people, 
as priest to cleanse the temple and as prophet to embody and proclaim the word of the Lord. You see, friends, when God's reign through King Jesus, when it collides with false worship and religious pretense, it does not coexist peacefully alongside it. It conquers it. Either through the blood of Jesus' cross and the cleansing of forgiveness now, or on the last day through the cleansing of judgment. Friends, don't get the wrong impression here. Jesus is not ticked off at believers who wrestle with sin yet are fighting against it. He's not miffed by those who struggle but limp along by faith. He's not going to stiff arm you because you're caught in sin so long as you recognize your need of Him. He has unlimited patience and kindness for those who in desperation cry out to Him for mercy. But make no mistake, Jesus' harshest words and His severest actions are for those who use God as cover for their sin. He will not stand for it, and neither should we. And yet, that's not all what we see in, of Jesus in the temple that day, is it? Again, here's where we see some of the, these diverse excellencies of our king. One moment he's exercising righteous judgment upon those who utilize the temple for their own advantage. And the very next moment he's pouring out his kindness upon the physically and spiritually disadvantaged, the blind and the lame. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. But have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Verse 14 contains the last record of Jesus' healing ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. And the way Matthew gives it to us is almost like an offhand comment, isn't it? Just so matter-of-fact. Of course, friends, we know it was not uncommon for handicapped beggars to post up on the outskirts of the temple complex, especially in such a busy time like the Passover. And yes, the disabled were permitted in the outer court of the temple, in the, in the court of the Gentiles, but... Most all scholars agree that the Jewish authorities prohibited those who were handicapped from offering a sacrifice in the temple. To the Jews, the in inherent dignity and worth of these disabled folks, it's like, they had a, it's like it had a cap. It was limited. They could only go so far with the worshiping congregation. Well, friends, praise God that although these disadvantaged folks could not come to the temple to sacrifice, they could come to the one who is greater than the temple. Since we'll not encounter another healing miracle by, by Jesus and Matthew, let me just remind you, Jesus' mighty works throughout the Gospels, they, they function like messianic billboards. They, they're like neon signs that highlight who Jesus is. Jesus' healing acts were, they were acts of compassion for the least of these, like these lame and the blind, but they were also the first evidences that God's chosen king was rolling back the effects of the curse and that one day all suffering and disease and sickness will die along with death itself. And yet what Matthew focuses on here is not Jesus' healing, 
specifically, but two contrasting responses to it. Among those who saw Jesus' healings were children there in the temple court, presumably with their parents. And what did those children do? How did they react? Well, they mimicked the cries that they had heard from the adults the day before when Jesus processed into Jerusalem. They cried, Hosanna to the son of David. Praise to the Messiah King, the one through whom God brings salvation. And yet, ironically, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the very ones who should have recognized Jesus for who he was and responded with full hearts of adoration, these religious leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, according to verse 16, do you hear what these are saying? In other words, hey, Jesus, can you believe, can you believe these children are praising you as the Messiah? Put an end to it. And Jesus said to them, you're right. So sorry. How embarrassing. No. He says, yes. He affirms the children's praise. And not only that, he ups the ante. He says, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Friends, this is incredible and awesomely hilarious in my mind. Jesus answers the question by quoting what? By quoting Psalm 8-2. It's part of our call to worship this morning. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What's amazing is that Psalm 8 is, is not a psalm that directly praises the Messiah, although it has Christological implications for sure. It is a psalm of praise to whom? Who? To God. To God Almighty for His majestic power and might in creation. Friends, do you see what Jesus is doing? He answers the leader's indignation about the kids praising Him as Messiah by saying that this very praise embodies Psalm 8-2, a song which calls children to give praise to God. Which, of course, is Jesus' not-so-subtle insinuation that, yes, He's the human King, He's the Messiah, but He's so much more. He's God in human flesh. You see, in praising the son of David, these little ones were in actuality praising the son of God. And their song put to silence God's enemies, just as the psalm says, these hypocrites that oppose Jesus. Friends, just like we saw last week on the road to Jerusalem, the song of these children should beckon us, should welcome us, should encourage us that no matter our age, we should be brought into the same type of genuine, uninhibited worship of King Jesus. And kids, I hope this part of the story encourages you. Kids, don't ever be ashamed or embarrassed to praise Jesus with all your heart. Don't ever think you're too cool for school to sing loudly to Jesus in our gatherings, or even better, to live for Him. With all you got, he's worthy of all the praise that you could give to him. I don't know about you, friends, but I would rather be among the disadvantaged that come to Jesus for mercy and among the little ones whose honest and genuine praise give Jesus the glory he deserves than have all the advantages of status and power 
that dead religion offers, but have none of God. May the Lord help us to worship him rightly. That's the cleansing of the temple. Number two, the cursing of the tree. Verse 17 notes that after the event of the temple, Jesus went out of the city to stay nearby Bethany for the evening. Now verse 18, in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. What in the world's going on? I mean, how bizarre, right? My goodness, what did this tree ever do to Jesus? Again, there is much more going on here than meets the eye. This is not an episode of Jesus being hangry, right? He's not a a diva throwing a tantrum against the tree. What he's doing is acting out a parable to make a point about the nation of Israel. You see, all throughout the Old Testament prophets, God referred to his old covenant people, Israel, through the image of a fig tree. See this in Hosea and Jeremiah, Micah. The prophets often compared the judgment of God against Israel's idolatry to the withering of the fig tree. The fig tree, of course, is one of the most common fruit trees in the Middle East. And so God utilizes a a commonly understood thing as a metaphor for the fruitlessness of his people. So it's clear here that I I think it's just plain as day that Jesus is making a point about Israel. But what point is he specifically making? Well, here's where it's helpful actually to understand a little bit about the Middle Eastern fig tree. You didn't bank on getting getting a botany crash course when you came to church this morning, did you? Right? At Passover time in Israel, March or April in our calendar, the fruit of the fig tree is not fully developed. That doesn't happen until middle May or so. However, when the fig tree starts to blossom, what happens is that first a little fig nub grows, like teeny tiny, like the size of an almond or so. And they're, and they're perfectly edible. And, and around the time this fig nub appears, the fig tree's leaves began to cover it as well. Okay, what's the point? Well, the point is that when Jesus saw the fig tree's foliage, he expected to find fruit. At the very least, the fig nub, right? But instead, the reality of this tree did not match its appearance. The tree gave the appearance of fruitfulness, but in reality, it was barren. So Jesus takes the opportunity to use the the tree as an analogy for the type of spiritual pretense that was so prevalent in Israel at the time. Pronouncing judgment on the tree, he was pronouncing judgment upon Israel for their Spiritual hypocrisy. Friends, Israel advertised to the world, through the temple, through the sacrificial system, and all the forms and ceremonies of the Mosaic law. They advertised, there is spiritual life here. But by and large, the heart of the people was far from the Lord. There was no living fruit on the people's tree. At this point, friends, what Jesus did in the temple makes even more sense theologically. 
These two scenes are not isolated from each other. Jesus didn't cleanse the temple and then he curses the tree like in their own kind of silos. No, these two scenes interpret each other. In cursing the tree, Jesus was pronouncing judgment upon Israel for acting the part when by and large her heart was far from God. And in cleansing the temple, Jesus was in fact cursing it too. God would not only judge Israel for rejecting the Messiah, this judgment would be expressed in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. It's like the failure of God's people had reached a point of no return. Their millennia-long drift from God had now culminated in the rejection of their promised king. So Jesus uses his kingly authority to dramatize this impending judgment by cursing the tree. Beloved, please don't remove yourself from application here just because Jesus' first application is directed toward Israel. This type of spiritual hypocrisy is a massive temptation for us as well. Jesus is unimpressed by, in fact, I would even say he actively opposes the type of life that works to give the appearance of spiritual fruit when the reality is lifeless and dead. It's so easy to put on the leaves of spirituality, isn't it? To have the foliage of the Christian life. I mean, all you got to do is show up to church, be active in ministry a little bit, serve. All of it can look so good. It's so easy to appear to have the, the spiritual life coursing through our branches while all the while having no actual spiritual fruit to show for it. It's deviously easy not only to dupe others into thinking we're a live fruit-bearing tree, but also even to dupe ourselves. Say, John, how does that happen? We can easily confuse Christian busyness with spirit-given holiness. We substitute feelings that we might get while singing in a church service for genuine intimacy with God. We conflate church membership with a genuine love for Christ and his people. We confuse doing formal ministry with an actual heart to serve. Friends, Jesus is not after good-looking, well-kept leaves. He's after the fruit of repentance and faith. He's after true reliance on the gospel. He's after the, the fruit of the Spirit's work within us. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, and the like. He's after faith-filled obedience and grace-fueled holiness. You know, it strikes me that while spiritual hypocrisy is a temptation for all Christians, all Christians, no matter the maturity level, it's especially a prevalent temptation for elders, for deacons, for ministry leaders, because there's incentive, if we're honest, there's incentive for us to keep our leaves looking full and green. There's incentive for us to have the appearance of godliness. Just look at the position that we're in. We're leading, we're teaching, we're mobilizing people for ministry or whatnot. People are looking to us as the pace setters for the church. I mean, what would happen 
if people realize that all this supposed growth on the outside is simply a good-looking cover for a growing deadness on the inside. Brother elder, brother, sister, deacon, deaconess, ministry leader. The worst thing you could do is if you sense the absence of spiritual life within you is to hide under the, the spiritual leaves of your own making. That type of hypocrisy will wither your soul. And if not repented of, will be judged in the end. Well, please don't try to be something you're not. Confess this type of pretense to the Lord, run to Jesus Christ in faith and pursue the type of honest transparency with other believers that will lead to your flourishing and fruitfulness in life. If you're here and not a Christian, you're here and not a Christian, friend, we never want to give you the impression here at Redeeming Grace Church that in order to be right with God, all you have to do is just a bunch of religious stuff, right? Just come to church regularly, do good works, some social justice things out there, mean well. No, Jesus' point here is that external Christianity without actual spiritual fruit is withering and it falls under Jesus' condemnation. You say, well, how then am I supposed to bear fruit that Jesus loves and that he commends? It's a great question and it's an easy answer. You simply turn from your sin against God and you rely wholly, entirely on Christ's work alone. His life, His death, His resurrection in your place. And by faith, reliance on Him, you follow Him, you submit to Him, and you obey Him. By faith, you come to God, friend, and you let Him connect you to the life-giving trunk of a relationship with Christ Jesus. And sooner than later, friends, what's going to happen is that the branches of your life, the branches of your thoughts, your motivations, your behaviors will, by God's mercy, begin to reflect the trunk. Jesus' life will course through you and you will bear fruit. Beloved, may the Lord help us to never be the type of church that substitutes dead religion for spiritual life. I pray that the Lord Jesus would never have the a reason, the occasion to look at what's going on in, inside Redeeming Grace Church and say to us, may you never bear fruit again. Well, just like verses 12 to 17 give us Jesus' indictment of false worship and then the kind of the mirror opposite in the praise of the children, we kind of have the same thing going on here in verses 18 to 22. Look at verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? <laughs> once again, <laughs> these guys seem to completely miss the boat. Instead of pondering why Jesus cursed the tree, all they can focus on is how in the world did the fig tree wither so fast? How'd you pull that off, Jesus? So like he often does, Jesus accommodates their obtuseness. He answers their question by showing them what a real life-giving relationship with God, what it looks like. What Jesus does here is give his disciples the antithesis of dead worship represented by the fig tree. What type of worship is that? But Jesus says it's the type of worship that's alive with faith in God. A trust in God that Jesus says is particularly expressed by 
prayer, by our prayer life. And of course, that shouldn't surprise us at all, given what Jesus said in the temple just the day before about God's design for the temples. That it would be a house of prayer for all the nations. In contrast to the pretense and the hypocrisy that he condemns, Jesus calls his disciples back into a life of living, breathing, fruit-bearing prayer. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the victory, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, friends, it would be really easy at this point to misread the text, to think that what this text is doing, what Jesus is saying, is kind of offering secrets to the magic show, right? To treat God as if he's a cosmic vending machine who responds to how many faith coins that we insert, right? You want God to do something just kind of small and insignificant? Well, only one faith coin is necessary. But you want him to do something huge? Well, you better gear up, man, and like have 10 coin faith so that your miracle will pop out. No, that's missing Jesus' point entirely. What Jesus is saying here, friends, is that living, is that a living, breathing relationship with God is expressed in a life of reliance upon God and faith in Him, trust in Him, who just happens to be the one who can do the impossible. Jesus is using hyperbolic language here to remind us not that, that we have the ability to throw a mountain into the sea, but that God does. And if he wants you, friend, to throw a mountain into the sea, as it were, well, that's what you're going to do. If he doesn't want you to do that, well, friend, you're not going to throw a mountain into the sea. Prayer doesn't treat God like a genie. It treats him as the sovereign, omnipotent, gracious, loving father that he is. And it relies on him alone to act. You live in relationship with God, not religion. I think this text just offers us an easy diagnostic for what we we're talking about before of whether our spiritual life is just leaves. How is your prayer life? How's your prayer life when no one is around to check and kind of do a leave inspection to see if there's any fruit in there? Is your prayer life vibrant? Is it hit or miss? Is it non-existent? Friends, hopefully it makes sense in light of Jesus' words here while we take time each Sunday morning for substantive prayer. We want our worship to be filled with prayer. That's why we take two Sunday nights a month and call our church to prayer for God to act among us and through us for the lost. Jesus has come so that we might know God truly. And the way we both cultivate and express that relationship with God is through faith-filled prayer. Here's the amazing news, friends, that this passage hints at as we close this morning. Jesus didn't come merely to tear the temple down, to tear the religious system down. He came to build an entirely new temple in its place. You say, John, where is it? Is it is like in Jerusalem that I need to make a, a pilgrimage to the, to the Holy Land, right? Is it somewhere in the Bible Belt? 
Well, I find it in Louisville. Is that where the temple is? No, friends. Through Christ, God no longer makes his dwelling place in a building at a specific location, but in and among his people who rely on him to save. And specifically, if you read passages like Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 1, you come to realize that this new temple that God is building brick by brick by brick is in fact the local church. Where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, there I am in the midst of them. Paul tells the church at Ephesus, and by extension, each local church until Jesus comes, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's new house of prayer. His place where the nations can stream in to know God rightly and relate to Him truly isn't in fact a place at all. It's a people. God makes His name known through local assemblies of believers who covenant together to represent King Jesus in this world. Redeeming Grace Church, we are a people in which God makes His home. He dwells among us. Through faith in Christ and by His Spirit, God has purposed to make Himself known and be worshipped in and among us. What a massive privilege. Say, John, how is that possible? How can a holy God take up residence in local churches filled with sinners? How can he dwell among those who are tempted by the same type of spiritual pretense we've talked about today? How could he ever make himself known through the likes of us? Friends, the reason that Jesus' temple building project through the local church is not only successful, but appropriate, is because there wasn't just one cursed tree outside Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago, there was two. The reality is that for each of us, each one of us left to ourselves, if we are left to ourselves in our sin, we deserve to wither under the curse of God's judgment for our sin and rebellion against God. But praise be to God. Jesus doesn't just curse the fig tree and pronounce judgment. He willingly hung on a tree in order to bear God's curse of judgment for every single sin of every single person who comes to him for forgiveness. The cross, the symbol of the curse, becomes a life-giving tree of blessing for all those who believe in Jesus and who rely on him to save. In his death, Jesus, the true temple, the true access point by which we come to God. He was destroyed. But in three days, he was raised to life again. And for all those who come to this Jesus by faith, his resurrection, fruit-bearing life will course through you too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one who has glories and 
beauty so diverse we could never comprehend, and yet we find it, find them blending so perfectly in you. Our King of grace and justice and majesty and humility and righteousness and love. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that in small part, in part now, but in full one day, you have purposed to reproduce those same attributes in us, to make us like you, to pattern our fruit, our thoughts, our behavior, our aspirations to look like the life of Jesus flowing through us. Oh Lord, we want to be a live tree. Individually, we want to be alive. Corporately, we want to be alive. Sustain that life through the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.